Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have Noham R. Kashak Schilling. Uh, Noham is a medicine person, researcher, and author on Northeastern Indigenous Sacred Archaeology, Ethnohistory, and Ethnobotanical Traditions. Noham is chair of Massachusetts Ethical Archaeology and medicine elder with Bridge in the Sky Medicine Circle. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Well, I'm really glad you're here because I think this is a perspective that is really important and often left out of the mix. And I came across you somewhat recently on, it was a group email regarding issues in Massachusetts forest management. I used to live in Vermont and was very aware of what was going on in New England around forest issues. And I appreciated what you had to say. And I thought, I want to invite this person on the podcast to to get that perspective out there. So let's just start from what you were talking a little bit about some of the different the usage patterns between, uh, as you put it, Native and European people in geographical terms. So how the land use might be different. Hmm, thank you. Yeah, I think that's an important point to bring up. Um, there, there are a lot of uh, things about land use that uh, yeah, tend to be what uh, anthropologists and others folks call uh, convergent. Um, and that's certainly true. In Massachusetts, there are a lot of convergent aspects of how uh, Euro-Americans and European colonists use land and how indigenous people use land in Massachusetts. Um, but there are uh, very important divergences of, uh, first of all, uh, concepts about land, uh, second of all, concepts about a human interaction with land. I think what we're concerned with most here, um, you know, uh, on the practical scale, is um, you know how that how that comes out in what happens on the land. Um, so uh, concepts about the land. First of all, uh, you know, there's a big gap between, uh, I would say, probably all, if not all, almost all, if not all, indigenous uh, Americas, the Western Hemisphere, and uh, the Euro Eurasian uh, predominant uh, outlook, at least in uh, historical times. I, I have to separate that out from prehistory of Asia and Europe and historical Asia and Europe, which are possibly two very different things. Um, but in any case, um, as people familiar with Western history uh, know, um, Judeo-Christian uh, slash Islamic uh, uh, cultural and religious outlook uh, is the dominant uh, historical period uh, cultural phase uh, throughout the North, the Mediterranean sphere and the European sphere, at least until you get into the North and East of Europe um, until, you know, the late 900s and 1200s uh, of the current period where uh, the same culture dominates through those uh, spheres well out to the Urals. And the concept that, you know, that culture holds is that um, it, in, you know, slightly different readings of text, um, the, the principle is that the, uh, that uh, the creator has placed human beings in a, in a position of dominance and ownership of the land. Um, and that's all we need to say about that. I don't want to, um, get further into that because I don't want to do any injustice culturally to anybody. 
Um, but uh, on the other side of the ocean, and I would say in, in some other places too, um, there was a different paradigm. Uh, first of all, there was a more of a diverse cultural uh, paradigm in that, uh, you know, there wasn't uh, as much empire uh, building and as much dominance, particularly in the area we're living in, in uh, Northeastern North America, um, that's particularly lacking historically, large scale war, um, large scale uh, building um, that converts land and all these things are, are missing from uh, the historical and archeological record. Um, so, and here the concept about land is uh, that, uh, you know, uh, first of all, the land is alive and it's a being, it's our mother um, and our relationship with it is that we live in this liminal space. We have a sort of a tiered concept of the world and there's, you know, an axis mundi, which is a common concept, but there's there's a center post in the world, goes up to the creator, and we're living in this space, this in-between space. And the um, the universe is kept alive by the movements of these energies be along these axes between these worlds. And we respect that our space is this liminal space here, uh, supported by our mother and, and overseen by the heavenly beings and our ancestors and the creator. And here we are in between um, walking this thin space for this little time. And so we have a very limited sense of owning anything. And uh, even linguistically in Algonquian languages, uh, as people like Bruce Pearson, who's a linguist who studied Lenape, which is a language that I have the privilege of being able to speak, um, uh, pointed out uh, that uh, our sense of possession is relational that uh, the owner belongs as much to the object as the object belongs to the owner. Um, so we have this very relational possessiveness with the land um, as opposed to a unilateral possessiveness of the land. And that, uh, that comes to play in how we uh, conceive of our, our purpose on the land and our position. Um, so uh, this is a very uh, status quo, I would say, you know, to speak in very wide terms a culture in the sense that it's very preservationist. And uh, the goal is to steward the land and preserve it for the seven coming generations. So every generation is thinking about the seven coming generations. This is like the ship of um, the seven generations coming, the living generations coming. Um, and uh, so we are trying to make sure that we sustain the benefits of everything that we've been given uh, for those who are to follow us. Um, so it, it gives a completely different attitude about um, what a person should and should not do. Uh, and this comes to play in how we, uh, how we use the land. So we were very minimalist by comparison. There wasn't this sort of capitalist concept of making money, first of all. So there's no motivation to use more than you need. Um, we kept very small families uh, by comparison all the colonists remarked on this very quickly upon arrival. Um, we're also uh, remarkably healthy. All this is attested by the colonists themselves about how we were generous, we were hospitable, we were very healthy, we live in a very clean environment. We had lots of fleas like Europeans do, though the Dutch noticed that uh, right away. Fleas were a problem for everybody. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and that, uh, we had you know, many differences, but one of the main differences was our attitude about uh, population. Um, we weren't trying to grow in numbers. We also weren't engaged 
in large scale wars. So we had no need to drum up a, uh, a an underclass of cannon fodder that we can throw at each other in empire games, um, which gives you a whole different outlook when every individual involved in that has sort of an equal status in society. There is no expendable membership that you can throw into wars. And so there is a, a reverse motivation all the time to avoid war, to avoid conflict, to reduce conflict, um, to reduce losses and to maintain um, a, a balance, a status quo. And uh, so our area of land usage was much smaller altogether on the whole. When you look at the map of Massachusetts today, and we, of course, we have like wonderful satellite and radar now and stuff like this. We have, uh, you know, false coloration uh, to help us visualize things very crisply. And you can very easily get on uh, the internet now and call up a, a series of images about um, progressive deforestation in Massachusetts and changes in land use over time. Of course, uh, Massachusetts has historically been almost entirely deforested, the exception of Wachusett and Kukwachu, or, or what they call Montobi Massif. Um, almost the entire state was deforested um, during the heyday of uh, sheep uh, industry. Um, and then uh, also as part of the kilning industry for production of lime. Um, so those were two things that really you know, hurt the forest. And then they've had some hundreds of years to recover from that. Um, but now we're going through a, a renewed phase of, of large scale uh, removal of forests that we really haven't done uh, in, in you know, living memory, uh, except for really the purposes of agriculture and in this past century, housing, residential development. Right. Um, so to so put this in a different frame, uh, so when you look at a map, you see a lot of deforested area, or when you even generalize maps where they show green for what's forested and sort of tan for everything that's not forest, you can see how it, the highways and everything have eaten up a lot of space. And let's not forget about all the power cable cuts and all these access cuts, um, which don't show on most maps. But if you look, zoom in on any chunk of forest, you'll find that most of them are divided severally by different cuts. Um, in any case, uh, if you uh, dial back to pre sixteen twenty, and actually in actuality, you know Europeans have been visiting since uh, the early fifteen hundreds, since Cartier and um, Verrazzano and others uh, have already. And then, of course, there's a lot of slave uh, uh, tax along the coast where people are kidnapping people for slavery and introducing diseases. So sixteen twenty is not a pristine moment in history. This is a hundred years of contact. A hundred and 10 or something like that, actually years of contact at that point. But I, if you go back before then, before Europeans have changed the landscape significantly here, uh, our actual land use base was much smaller than even during the, uh, I would say like the mid 1600s to the mid 1700s and early 1800s. Uh, even though the population took a long time under Europeans to build back up to what it had been before diseases were unleashed on our coast. Um, the fact is that outside of the Boston Bay area, which is, it has to be understood. It, there's a lot, a lot of times colonial testaments are used in the argument about land management traditions of Native Americans in this state, um, where they cite a few early visitors to Boston Bay area, and they talk about what's going on in Boston Bay. And it needs to be understood that the the cultures of the coastal plain, meaning the Massachusetts and the uh, Wampanoag and, and these people um, who are close relatives and arguably even 
kind of the same people almost. Um, and the Eastern Nipmuc, uh, that coastal plain area is uh, ecologically and sociologically different from the rest of Massachusetts. Um, and the Boston Bay area was very heavily populated at the time that these people were witnessing it. And, and much of the surrounding area had been very recently depopulated by epidemics at on the Cape reaching upwards of 80 and 90% depopulation. So they're walking into a landscape that's been vastly changed by recent population, what I would call even almost a cop, uh, sort of population problem in the making. Um, they arrive at a scene where that's been recently radically disrupted by epidemic, um, but the evidence on the ground of what people have done is still there. So they see not many people like they would have 50 years before, but they're still seeing what the people have done. And they talk about how it's all cops would and how they, they quote unquote ruined the hilltops by cutting, but we're talking about an area where the bottomlands were being fairly intensively cultivated and where the concentration of villages was basically village to village um, and the lands around them being in use almost contiguously, um, leaving not a lot besides the hills uh, for what you might call woodlots and also to uh, to secure game, deer, turkey, it probably weren't many bear in the area. And it's not great bear habitat anyway, but deer and turkey primarily, but also um, pigeons and squirrels and a host of other, uh, and beaver, a host of other animals that were uh, on the menu all the time uh, to secure that food source. Uh, so that can, does not reflect the reality in Western Massachusetts at all. Um, in Western Massachusetts, uh, it, almost all the state from like about the boundary of Worcester County West is highlands. It, it goes slowly up by Wachusett, um, gains altitude and becomes basically what they call a, you know an eroded uh, plateau all the way out to the Berkshires divided by the Connecticut Valley and several other river valleys. And uh, as Elliot knows, way back when, uh, the preacher Elliot, who did a lot of recording about native people out here, um, it's basically a, a plateau of 800 to 1,000 feet going off. This is a very different terrain. And the arable lands, the lands that were cultivated called Katinakish, Katam means uh, it, a person digs it. Not he or she, can't say that in our language because in Algonquian languages, there are no he, she, or it's. It's a either, it's just a third person. A person digs it. Kutinakish means uh, it, those lands that have, have, that are cultivated, plantation lands. And those were limited to immediate river valleys like the Swift River Valley, the uh, Quabog River Valley, the Ware River Valley, unlike the Deerfield River Valley, Connecticut River Valley. And those areas were often very intensively populated right along the uh, valley itself, especially in choice areas. And they, uh, the same places tended to be uh, populated and repopulated over the millennia, or the, you know, the, at least the 12 to 14 millennia that are available on record since glacial times. And uh, the land usage was very concentrated around the village area. Villages were very tightly formed. They're not suburban small like we have now. Um, they're very, people is very close together. And then they planted very close around themselves, um, and out, and they used mostly the alluvial uh, floodplain forests uh, areas, which would be cycled through these cycles depending on the land and the people 
could be anywhere from three to uh, uh, basically a 21 year cycle in between usages once they had used a plot for uh, X many years. Um, and uh, so a lot, you know, a lot of, uh, of this transitional forest that the ECR keeps talking about was actually maintained on those lands by their class systems of fallow and reuse. Um, but the, uh, so that's very important to understand. And then I, I have an article from uh, Northeast Anthropology uh, back in 2018, where we examined, uh, it's called Eliluea Kikangake, which means, uh, so said the departed elders. And it's about Algonquian land use traditions, where I talk uh, uh, about evidence that shows that uh, we had a very um, defined sense of land zones and uh, very strict uh, usages of land. Um, and outside of the bottom lands, uh, the upland forests were very minimally used. It, it would be hard to uh, evidence uh, much human impact on those lands. Uh, one of the reasons being that um, our rate of wood use mm. so much less than uh, what modern people use. Uh, you know, heavily framed houses with outbuildings, um, paper, <laughs> toilet paper, um, just endless uh, and, and burning wood as, as logwood, as round, you know, split logs, which uh, we did not do. Um, so it, we've sourced almost all of our wood needs from the Kutenakish in the various uh, cycles of fallow. Uh, a wigwam, uh, which, you know, or, or you know, wikto, um, uh, anyway, niswikto or whatever, um, they are all built out of, of small saplings. Uh, and these are these are saplings that are gonna be less than a dozen years old, um, a good deal less in most cases. And then they're either covered with reeds or old, old mats, reed mats, fresh or reed mats old, um, or like the split, uh, the peeled bark of a uh, slippery elm, or if they're if you're in that range, an old uh, tulip tree, you know, yellow poplar and this and that. There, there are several, but slippery elm was the favorite one. Uh, which you can't find anymore because of Dutch elm disease. But uh, so you, it would take one fallen old elm tree to you know cover a couple of wigwams. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not a heavy wood usage. Uh, uh, the uh, the wood for burning was mostly sourced out of Katinikish. You had to uh, clear uh, old lots in order to do new planting land cyclically, and you'd be taking down the kind of size of wood that people would be burning in their wigwams, which are very heat efficient because they have a round roof rather than a squared peaked roof. Um, now, you know, modern archaeology, or I'm sorry, architecture has, you know, come to realize again that the rounded roof is more heat efficient. Um, the Europeans are always commenting on how many people we stuffed into a home. Um, I'm, I'm both Algonquian and Latinosoni. On the other side, you know, what people call Iroquois. And uh, you know, we stuffed even more people into a, a bigger single home. Um, but all those people in there being close uh, greatly reduces the need for heating. <laughs> Nothing like a bunch of 98.6ers uh, stuffed into a small space um, to make it warm and also very intensely social. Um, so we didn't use much wood. It's just like sort of recap, you know, um, the area of our land use was much smaller. Although we were much more concentrated in our land use um, and much more zonally focused. We were very focused in in actual usage between the river, the water sources are in there a lot, the river banks, uh, the Kutinikish, 
and just above it on the, the older uh, river shelves, you know, the older uh, ledges of the river uh, would be the uh, Otanak, the, the uh, villages. Um, and above that is what's mostly uh, referred to it as a general overall term as Tawokumuk, uh, which these days is often translated as forest, but it really means open uh, district, meaning unassigned lands, lands that aren't plots given out to one clan or another for their farming or whatever. Um, they belong to everybody. And in those lands are our hunting lands, our ceremonial lands, um, our burial lands, uh, our, our sacred stone prayers, and the mountain tops where we, you know, get in touch with the sky spirits physically. Um, and these are all what you call in modern times conserved lands, protected lands, because everything you could do on those lands was fully circumscribed by ceremonial tradition. Hunting is fully circumscribed by ceremony. You don't go just go out and hunt. Um, there's a whole lot of uh, ceremony that has to happen before you are entitled to hunt. Um, they, it, you have to do ceremony before you're physically prepared to do it. When you take an animal, you have to do ceremony. There's ceremony around everything. Uh, even as uh, John Brown, who's a medicine person in the Narragansett, once told a big landowner here in a debate about sacred lands, he said, uh, I dare to uh, quote him, um, everywhere we hunted, uh, did ceremony and made arrowheads, the sacred land. And I, you know, that's a very succinct and fully acceptable summary, I think, um, puts it in a nutshell. Um, and so, yeah, our rate of wood use was very, uh, so we had very segregated zone usage. We had a uh, very small, uh, you know, usage of wood, comparatively speaking. Um, and we seldom, you know, went to outside of the Kutenikish, outside of the alluvial floodplain to obtain wood, except for when you need to make like a big uh, ceremonial misul or mishun, um, a big dugout canoe, if you need to make a big ceremonial when you might take one tree and that tree would probably be selected by the medicine person and then marked and, you know, uh, ringed years before it was used and then carefully slid down the hill to the riverside, you know, with minimal impact of any kind. Um, so that, uh, I think that like pretty much frames uh, the main differences in how we understood in and used land, except to say that they, uh, the whole society had a pretty good steeping as individuals in the concepts of land stewardship. And even if they weren't medicine persons or persons who were sort of steeped in the knowledge of why or how land needs to be uh, stewarded, uh, they were nonetheless culturally steeped in the rules of what the person does and doesn't do to the land. Um, so they, everybody was basically on board. In those days, everybody would be sort of a, a partially qualified uh, you know, conservation ecologist um, in today's terms with a good direct knowledge of the, um, you know, the, the biomechanics of ecology of the land they lived on, the good intimate knowledge of the interaction between that bug and that flower and that tree and that fungus and that bird that comes at this time, and which means that this is gonna happen. You know, uh, and that kind of granular level understanding of local ecology um, is irreplaceable um, as many ecologists have found, 
um, when trying to unlock the secrets of, of biological interactions in ecology in a particular place. Yeah. That's fascinating. And that's such a great overview. I knew some of that, but a lot of that I did not know. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners were not aware. I think that's really fascinating that basically there is zoning laws in effect, basically. But what's different, of course, the, the reason it seems that this was the closest that modern humans have ever come to balancing with the natural world, it comes from a, a deeper place of belief in the sacred, that nature is us, we are nature, and that there are deeper forces at work, whereas the, like you mentioned, the Judeo-Christian Islam ethic is that all this is just for us to kind of like chew up and spit out. And that is what led to the two very divergent paths. And sadly, of course, the one that became the most destructive one that overtook all the others was the one take, 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 right? Because take, take, take tends to be, well, let's lay off, right? That's just kind of the unfortunate way things tend to turn out. So I guess the question in my mind is, what can folks living today take from these past ways that were basically the closest thing that we've ever seen to sustainability without necessarily, I think the idea of saying, well, okay, adopt the exact beliefs that folks had. Mm -hmm. I think some people will, but I think most people won't. And maybe that would be ideal, but I don't think that that's very realistic. So is there a way that people can start developing more of that appreciation for the sacred and that itself is going to lead us to better land use, land reform, rather than, okay, well, we have to legislate this specific thing that's sort of just like messing around with the symptoms, right? Yeah, I, I hear you. Uh, yeah, I think sometimes there, there is a um, grabbing at straws at the legislative level where <laughs> they, uh, you know, that, that's one of the deep flaws in politics is that um, it, it, it's, a, it's a terrible game of telephone where they, the end message that comes out in the form of legislation, it, it, you know, has been passed through so many um, ears and minds and mouths that uh, it often has very little relationship to the message that started. <clears throat> but um, I hear on that, and I, I want to be fair. I just want to go back and, and be fair to say that um, I don't want to blame uh, anybody's religion um, for you know uh, what turned out to be you know extractionist. Uh, um industries I, I, I have to admit that um you know i've heard people argue that uh, the holy books of the of the near east uh, also uh conversely argue that people should be good stewards mm -hmm. um and I, I won't pretend to cite that because I'm, I'm not very good at it mm -hmm. but uh i just want to respect that but mm -hmm. yeah it, it is very true though that come what may uh that message ended up being in action, you know, a, uh, a really wholesale kind of, you know, just extracting and, and you know, just chew it up and spit it out. Um, and, that, and that still tends to be, and that's very much the um, Wall Street model right now. You know, everybody's trying to milk the profits out of companies um, and throw the shell of the company away often, or, you know, if we're still um, de-shelling our resources and taking all the meat out, um, but what does that leave? for the coming generations. So I think a lot of us have uh, children and 
or you know friends who and relatives who have children we need to think about that um and i think what you're very right we can't really um expect people to convert uh their cultural views that's kind of a fair you know request um but uh i think there's a lot uh, that understanding can do uh that people can translate across to whatever they need to do in their lives um, and the decisions they need to make. Uh, so I think one of, one of the you know concepts we need, so it, I, I think if there's a further understanding that really helps here. Um, and that uh, takes us to like a little side subject about the development of the forests uh, in this area. Um, and that I think can speak to what, you know, what can people do? Um, so one little further piece of understanding is that um, if you go back like 12 and 14,000 years ago, 14,000 years ago, the you know, glaciers have moved off of this land. Um, Forcer, it, it's actually like post-glacial post savanna, tundra, like a dry tundra situation, particularly along the coast, very dry savanna kind of situation, very different from today. Then about 12,000 years ago, you start to see a lot of, well, actually you see a lot of spruce. So it's like a taiga, it's like a Northern boreal forest. People are hunting caribou, they're living off of beaver, berries, fish. Um, then uh, between 10,000, 8,000 years ago, things get very dry and warm. There's a lot of fire in Massachusetts and uh, spruces don't do well with fire. They don't like hot and dry at all. Um, climate changes and uh, in between the spruce and the eight and 10,000 years ago, oaks start to come in and like Southwest Massachusetts start coming up the Appalachians um, and by about 8,000 years ago, we start to see what a forest that looks something like the forest we have today. And that's uh, dame by oak and pine, white pine, which is still kind of, is it? and maple, of course, is very dominant now. Chestnut used to be very dominant in the ridges, but chestnut is now, you know, struggling um, root shoots that they, you know, technically, technically not extinct or extirpated because their shoots are coming up. But in any case, uh, that uh, that also coincides with the period where uh, you start to see uh, the human footprint much more on the land. So if we understand that we come from 8,000 years ago to today, or at least about 400 years ago, under um, a land use regime that evolved along with the, those same people, we can understand like why that is a model that we need to use to understand the ecology of our forest today which is why it matters how we use the land, how we use the wind, all that stuff. Um, because that is the model for how these forests evolved. Um, so if you understand that, then uh, looking at our land use patterns, we did not use the uh, upland areas uh, much at all in terms of, uh, we use them intensely for medicines and hunting and this and that, but you know, when it, when you talk about impact on the forest, it'd be hard to find any, like I was saying before, um, because of the way we used it. Um, there are all these restrictions because that is sacred activities. All those things are, 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 are sort of regulated, heavily regulated. Um, and so uh, if we want to model today, we need to understand. And actually, by the way, you can also uh, like sort of cross check me on that with a lot of indigenous cultures. If you can check videos about indigenous people speaking about their land in different places around the world, um, they'll hear that uh, they'll say that you know that people will cut the bottom land forest because it regenerates well and because you can plant there, but they avoid usually unless they're highlanders by nature, 
they avoid cutting the hyaline forest because it takes so much longer to heal. Um, and we did the same thing. So we're very careful how we treat those lands um, for a bunch of reasons, but partly it comes down to a, basically what you call, you know, science these days. In those days, it was seen more in a spiritual terms, but understood in the end the same way. So if we're going to, if we're going to, you know, provide continuity for the species that live here, we're going to avoid extinctions. If we're going to avoid, uh, you know, big changes to the ecology of how our forests work, and if we're going to avoid, you know, like epidemics of disease in our forests and, you know, invasive uh, crises in our forests, we need to do those first two things, which is provide continuity for species and provide continuity for the ecologies that they live in. Uh, we need to understand that we cannot significantly interfere with upland forests. If you say, oh, but the forest needs to succeed in, in cycle. Well, it does because there are beaver and beaver are, are the primary agents of that successional system along with uh, storms and naturally induced fires. Um, and that is the sum total of the successional movement that we need in those areas. And that is the historic and, uh, you know, archeological reality of how those forests evolve. Um, it bears saying, however, that when beaver popula populations reach a certain threshold, uh, we need to understand that the native people did uh, very frequently eat and use beaver, eat beaver meat and use their fur. So we, we maintained the beer population, the beer, beaver population, um, according to our systems too. Um, that's not to say that we hunted them down, um, but uh, they are species that historically were hunted. And so uh, that whatever model you use, that, that reality needs to be accommodated in your model. Mm. Um, when it comes to lowlands, again, um, there are a lot of lands. If you read the deeds from town to town, up and down, there, there are deeds that specify all the lands that were, you know, quote unquote, sold. Uh, but I'm not, that's another argument. Um, they're, they're really read like leases, not sales, if you read them. Um, but in any case, uh, they do say what lands were used for what in each town, pretty much. They'll talk about the planting lands. They'll talk about other spaces. The spaces they basically don't name is because the colonists weren't really interested. So they didn't bother to talk about that. Um, but we can use that to show, uh, to make a, a rough model of what lands uh, get used and what lands uh, don't get used in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think you would find that doesn't really match what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. um, we, we need to understand that right now, the residential use and overall use is much higher than it has uh, been for the past several thousand years. And so, uh, if we're gonna maintain a healthy system, we need to find ways to be more efficient. We need to find ways to reduce our usage altogether. Um, we need to find ways to uh, protect large swaths um, that are basically unmanaged. This management model is not does not reflect historic uh, reality. Mm -hmm. um, there were not enough people to need that wood. There was not enough use, there's no motivation to put it quite simply us have gone out and managed the way they're talking about forest burning cutting this that and the other ring um, we we were walking lightly there um, so we need to have large swaths of basically you know permanent no-cut forest where natural cycles are going to be allowed to uh 
maintain themselves there. And that's, you know, consists of really the upper two thirds of elevation, mm. which is a lot. Um, and uh, it, that's, but that's a reality that we're facing. Um, and then uh, the level of usage in the lower a third of elevation um, needs to be a lot less than it is to put it quite simply. Uh, we also, we lack ancient forms. We, act, we lack forest areas where truly mature trees are. Um, they're calling like a 70, 80 year old tree over mature now and cutting it down. Um, you know, for a being that can live anywhere from 300 years to several thousand years, uh, you know, 70 or 80 being called over mature is like calling a toddler too old <laughs> to live anymore. Um, so that's not within reality. Um, and the, uh, I think the main things every individual can look to for themselves is they can look at their efficiency. Mm. Um, we're, we're very inefficient. We, I've heard estimates that we can recapture, um, 30 to 40% of our energy needs by efficiency alone. Um, we reduce our paper usage, electronic, uh, record keeping is really helping with that, but there's still a lot of paper heavy, uh, uh kind of, uh, behaviors going on, uh, burning woods for homes. I, you know, I, I think it's something that we need to um, grow up and get over. Uh, I know people, they think it's, I, they like it, whatever, but um, it's the worst polluting source of uh, emissions besides soft coal. Um, and it, you know, at least coal plants have detoxification, quote unquote, scrubbers on them, whereas a home chimney has none whatsoever. Um, we need to uh, be in our cars less. We need to be on planes a lot less. Um, we need to uh, unplug more often. Uh, we need to do all these things if we if we wish to you know survive mm -hmm. um, with the other species on the land. Um, we also need to. Um, I don't think we're in a position where we can export timber. To put it quite flatly. Uh, also, I'd like to point out that uh, a few hundred years ago, uh, the Euro Americans fought a revolution against the British um, because they didn't want to export their raw resources to be turned into value added products and then sold back to them at a tariff, which is exactly what we're doing with our forests that are being like, I think about 40% of the production that the state is overseeing is being shipped out of, to uh, out of state and mostly to Canada for further processing. I know of one tribe that is having their forest cut on their tribal lands, which I personally hurts me that they're doing this and they're shipping it to Alabama for processing, giving it the biggest carbon footprint they prob probably could. And I think those are models that are models of failure. I think a model of success is, uh, sees a lot more limited usage. I'd like to see the, um, the cabinetry trades revived in Hartford and Springfield and Amherst. That used to be in Holyoke, they used to be kind of the, uh, a pride of the region in, in early post-colonial times, by the way, you know, um, Leading up to the revolution, just after you know these people were you know doing fine work with small amounts of wood, turning out a very high value product, in you know something that could be modeled as a sustainable industry. Um, I think you know we don't need to do IKEA, which I think is the wrong way to go. And who wants to compete with that with cheap furniture from China and Sweden? But we could uh, go back to making fine cabinetry like they did. Uh, during colonial times, which was a very low usage rate and uh, used a lot of bottomland species like walnut. Um, and uh, it'd do some fine work and, and employ people in a real way because that industry would employ a lot more people per unit sold 
Uh, logging now is usually done with you know the large scale machinery. It's like three people on site, one in the truck, one in the reaper harvester, you know, reaper stripper, whatever you call those things, and then and then a supervisor. Um, so I think uh, those are all things that we can do. Um, and I also think uh, you know if we if we change how we use wood or how we are allowing the government to regulate the the logging of wood in the state from har you know harvesting quote unquote logging for outward sale and for immediate profit to local uh, small uh, scale small business use for fine products I think that really fits the history and model of uh, Massachusetts culture more closely um, than large scale exploitative uh, extraction industry does um, so I think at all levels it uh, addresses all the parts of this that we we would really want to address um, you know to benefit ourselves and our children I think it's very short-sighted to think that we can you know just uh, use forests like there's some kind of um, you know harvestable crop um, and sell them at the for the least amount of profit possible and employing the fewest people possible with the largest ecological impact possible out of the choices we have. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I think that's all really beautiful. That's a holistic vision that I personally share pretty much all the points from A to Z there. And I think that's how we do have to look at things, right? I don't think it's just about some quick legislative fix. I think until we go deeper in terms of how we're living, we're not really going to be addressing this stuff. We all know that state and federal agencies couldn't care less about that and maybe do some lip service in terms of helping out tribes here and there, but these agencies themselves don't really embody any of these values. And I don't know what you think about this, but do you feel as if the environmental movement really even touches on much of what you've been talking about? I think they fall short there. It's unfortunate, you know. I think it's it's very important. I'm glad that people are bringing so much attention to uh, crises that we need to face. It's see, you know, people had to have a tendency to hide from their problems until forced to face them, and that's a little too late. I think it's already a, little, a lot of people are suffering. It's already becoming too late. And I I hear you on that. I think um, there are some things lacking. Uh, people do tend to. I had talks with people who are like, oh, solar is great, you know, all this, and then close this book, like, and not disinvited from any further discussion. <laughs> um, there's a lot of drawbacks. Um, there's a lot of drawbacks to a lot of uh, just about any model we can put out there, except for the model of conserving and reducing. Um, but uh, I, I think there are things lacking from the, uh, the solution that as you say, and we're touching on some of them, which are real models for changes in behavior. Uh, you know, it's great for Greta Thunberg to come over here and give people a hard time, but I have to take exception. Maybe some people are going to be mad, um, but, you know, I don't want to badmouth anybody, but I have to take exception to that model. Um, please don't get on the plane. <laughs> please stay home and, and talk to the people next door and the people in your town and the people in your own country and Please solve your own country's consumption problems and uh, and call us on the phone <laughs> and, and we'll talk to each other about how we can do the same thing here. Um, and, and please don't use the cell phone because the children in Zaire have to die for us to get 
our cell phone batteries. Please use a landline. It's uh, it's way more efficient um, and, and less damaging to the environment to use it, which is the most unwanted thing to say. Um, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that going on Facebook is the way to solve things. People, you know, it's feels great, but what, you know, a lot feel great is important, but um, being effective is, is what makes things change mm-hmm. in the real world. And to be effective, I think we need to um, do a little less cheerleading and a little less patting each other on the back and, and talking to the course and a lot more uh, talking across to those who oppose you mm-hmm. um, and having real conversations with people who oppose us um and and also taking personal local action personal action neighborhood action town action um and and just making good on what we're saying if we're saying oh yeah i love the earth the way you know i'm so worried about global change i love the future generations want them to live then please uh, stay off the plane and please uh um you know uh don't consume something don't make that next unnecessary purchase um that uses raw materials and things like this we can do a lot, I think, that way. Um, and I think those are some holes. And the other, there's some bigger holes, though. I think they're a little more complicated than we can talk about here, as far as like structural policy making um, pieces. And and those are, I, I think, a lot of the same people who are are trying to do something are prepared uh, if the conversation becomes available, where they can participate in a democratic process, where they try to you know understand, frame, and execute solutions. Um, if it could be less of a small closed committee behind doors thing and more of a public participation um, and education uh, thing, I think we'll be more successful. And, and by the way, I think um, there are countries around that are, are um, a little bit more active than us in, in trying to make real steps to address things. And I think we can look to them by how they did it. And a lot of the grassroots people were talking about here, part of what we're talking about here, you know, are available to execute those actions. I'm talking about like the planting these green walls in along the Sahel, um, and along the edge of the Gobi in northern China or Inner Mongolia, um, all these kinds of things. And of course, there are many, many more kinds of projects than just that. But uh, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where government action and some money are put into really good effect by lots of volunteer or very low paid hands getting in there and just, and doing some work. And, uh, I think a lot of the people who are out there um, talking would, would definitely be doing if given more on the ground opportunities to get out and do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think that's all super, super crucial. The challenge that we're up against, of course, is that agencies, that are dictating, let's just say our land use, obviously it's bigger than land use, but just coming back to the land use thing, the agencies themselves, this isn't even on their radar again, except for a little, um, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, su- supply some funding for some indigenous causes sort of, but they're really, they're not really on board. And we all know that. <laughs> so, but they're not going to just do that on their own, right? That's not really where their headspace is at. It seems as if- no. The pressure has to come from the public. It has to come from, well, the environmental movement, which is where the push typically comes from. So are there any ways that we can start including more of the indigenous perspective in 
say, the environmental movement, the ones who actually are the, the pushers of this sort of cultural change? I think there is. I think, um, you know, people are putting themselves out there, um, but it, and it carries across, I think, in um, nonprofit and socially progressive spaces where people are actively trying to do something. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it carries across, excuse me, up, upward into government uh, echelons very well. Mm-hmm. Kind of glass ceilings out <laughs> at the nonprofits and, and the social movements level. Um, I feel like uh, it just people have been given uh, space in those areas. Um, it, although, you know, sometimes I think the dynamics can be improved. Like uh, we don't we don't have control of a lot of spaces where we speak. It's not, we tend to get doled out pieces of space uh, where we can have a voice, but we don't really have a balance where it is people have their own voice and we can just use that. Um, it's usually at the at the least of somebody who actually holds the power. Mm. So that's a dynamic that could help change. I think that's, you know, just across the board, as far as diversity goes, um, one of the things we suffer from is um, not that not that there aren't a whole lot of allies, but one of the things we suffer from is that we if you look into the government and you look into look at a TV or whatever, you, you still see a lot of the a very undiverse uh, voicing. And even, I don't even, it, it, in terms of anything, even when it comes to, even if the people all look the same or something like this, even when it comes to the voice that they're speaking um, amongst, the, you know, as individuals tends to be uh, very not diverse. I think you were addressing that a little bit about the, uh, the different departments and agencies you know, tend to be a sort of one chime um, and, and not discursive, you know, not inviting any, they, they have commentary periods, but then, you know, they always remind you at the end of the commentary period that that's it. <laughs> it's just you spoke and you're shouting into the wind mm-hmm. um, because that there is no follow-up to that. That's done. Um, it's, uh, it's, we listened, we're done with you. Um, and so that's not an interaction. That's, um, that's a way of sort of like wearing, letting somebody wear themselves out. Yep. Um, which I think some people don't realize. They think that's really participatory, but it's really just a vacuum into which you can empty your words. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, agencies have their budgets and they need to use them so they don't get their budgets reduced next time in the next financing cycle. Right. So that counter motivates anybody to uh, save money or divert money to other things. Also, these people tend to be very specifically trained. So mm-hmm. you know, they're the engineer who does roundabouts, they don't do other things. And so if they change course, they sort of, uh, you know, talking themselves out of a job. Um, so these are dynamics that really, you know, hurt the ability to make, you know, even critical changes that uh, to save, you know, our system. If we look at, you know, what's happening ecologically and we look at pandemics, um, you know, I have some unfortunate, you know, uh, news that people have to get ready to hear. They don't have to hear, but they'll certainly be experiencing it no matter what they hear or think, which is that pandemics are gonna be more frequent because we have more people. It's gonna be 9 billion people soon. And uh, ecological climate change is gonna be more severe because we're gonna have 9 billion people soon and they all wanna eat. They all wanna heat their dinner. They all wanna take a bath. And guess what? They also all want internet connection, a car to take plane trips and, this is a problem. Um, so uh, we need models to figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think you're right in, in that uh, it, we need a new dynamic about how agencies do things because they're not adaptative. 
Right. Um, they, it's very locked into a pattern. This is a problem we have with legislature. This is one of the problems we have. We're like locked into our patterns and we, we need to be more, you know, be able to adapt more fluidly to crises. Um, and I think, unfortunately, this, you know, very painful pandemic has shown how we don't adapt well to crises. This is the second pandemic in a century. And this one has not gone any better than the last one, which I remember my grandmother telling me that, um, and she survived. Um, so I think we want to do better um, in the future for our own sake. Right. Nobody else's sake but our own, you know? Totally, totally agree. Yeah, and I'm curious what you think of this, but in my mind, it's, it, you know, it's tough to intellectually just appreciate nature. I think you can do it. You can look at the science. You can look at, oh, the concept of nature. But really, you have to kind of get out in it. And, of course, Native people, they lived in it. And, of course, we still do sort of. But we have so many distractions in our world is so human-made at this point that it's, it's as if we're not living in nature at all. But mm -hmm. to, to really appreciate it, so we get out it, and that's the only time that you have that deeper connection. It's, and you can call it spiritual, you can call it what, whatever you want. I, I think cultures across the world had that similar view back in the day. So native cultures, for sure. Same with a lot of Hindu and Buddhist cultures. I just want to read a quote that I just pulled up because I read it earlier today, and I think it's relevant to this. So Alan Watts, he wrote a lot about Buddhism and Hinduism. And so this is a totally different culture than Native American, but there are so many threads that are so similar. So the quote from one of his books is, if the earth is man's extended body to be loved and respected as one's own body, those who do no greening of themselves will hardly bring about the greening of America. So I think that's a beautiful sentiment. And mm -hmm. uh, I was curious what you think about how that all comes into play. I think it's true. Um, I think it's very true. Um, and that unfortunately is like, the difference between my experience and a lot of other people's experiences. Um, I, uh, my life has been very much lived on the land and, uh, you know, in the forest, uh, a great deal. And so, uh, you know, that's what makes my understanding experience different and culturally it is, uh, just much more uh, connected to that. I think even for my own children, um, the experience has been, uh, so different that even when they were small, even though they were very uh, deeply connected, I think, uh, you know, uh, their modern teenage and adult life has carried them away. They still have that connection in their hearts. I think, uh, and I see that pulling them back sometimes, right? You know, their day-to-day -day life is, is very uh, mainstream. And uh, I, I really think it's dangerous to become too disconnected from your reality, to live in a reality that's created um that makes it seem like you don't live on the earth or depend on it directly it's very dangerous and i think uh, what Alan watts is saying is you know points that out very clearly I, i'd like to say that everybody is indigenous to somewhere mm. and many of us like myself are indigenous to several somewheres because we're a very uh, diverse world in of ourselves uh these days um and somewhere not that far back for everybody is a time uh, when we were living, you know, pretty similarly in that kind of 
understanding the balance and the kind of very intimate knowledge, uh, which is so informative, right? Because there's when somebody does something, you know, for livings, as they say, all day long, um, for so many years, their knowledge of that uh, subject, that activity becomes so deep um, that it can't be replaced. You, to go to somebody with real experience in a thing for many years who who's good at it, who's paid attention, um, you know, it's such deep knowledge. And I think that's a way to understand really living in connection to land and depending on it and being close to it um, gives you a whole, it, it does um, radically change your understanding. And that I think radically changes your thoughts and feelings. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. If folks want to find out more about stuff you put out in the world or get a hold of you or anything like that, is there a way? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so I am a medicine elder for Bridge in the Sky Medicine Circle. Um, and uh, we're a, a branch. We're supported by Azula Foundation, which is spelled O-S-O. Uh, on, online, you have to put a dash, A-H foundation um you can reach us there um but i also am chair of the massachusetts ethical archaeological society and uh we're at meas we're at uh, ethic arch or ethic arc um dot org you can reach us there um and uh i also have a uh, a cultural channel on youtube if you're interested in um learning more about indigenous culture of this specific part of the country, Algonquin culture. Um, I don't speak much on Ganyankeha uh, culture or Latino, you know, uh, Six Nations culture myself because there are so many people who are uh, experts and who are cultural carriers um, whose position it is to do so. And I'm happy you know, to stand aside, um, but the people can really tap into that a lot um, and check it the Mohawk people at Agwisasne um, and many other, and I can share resources if people don't know how to find them. But uh, for here, uh, for this area, there aren't many people um, to speak because a lot of the uh, nations of this particular region uh, don't have a, a tribal body today that's recognized anywhere. Um, so in any case, uh, at YouTube, um, I have a channel uh, called Sasa Chiminesh, which is uh, fanatic, if uh, it's S-A-S-A-C-H-I-M-I-N-E-S-H, and it's the name of, uh, of Nutsedge, it's Nutsedges. Um, so a word I picked um, because it was a word that appeared in a bunch of deeds, but it never appears in any dictionary. Nobody ever bothered to explain what the word was, but uh, there are a whole bunch of deeds signed where people were very specifically saying, but I want to reserve access to those. So I thought at some point somebody should figure out what those are that everybody wanted access to. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, uh, there's uh, there are in cultural I, I do traditional oral traditions um, there from Lenape, and uh, I talk about uh, regional culture in Massachusetts um, and uh, some archaeological uh, information about Massachusetts as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but thanks though for asking. Yeah. I'll include the links in the description so people can check oh, out. That's great. Thanks. Yeah. 
hardly well, spill out links verbally. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's good. It's a good reminder for folks to click on those links. So yeah, thanks again, Noham. This has been really excellent. And this really adds to the Green Root Podcast library. So thanks again. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your invitation.